0: you can actually design the future culture um, in a very organic, natural way and very authentic because it's done from within. It's not done from the outside.
1: Hi, I'm Duncan Pryor, digital transformation consultant and host of the Making Things Work podcast. I love looking for innovative and creative ways to make work better so that we can get the balance right in our lives and have seen how leadership and teams can accomplish that. In this podcast series, we meet a group of executive leaders to understand what leadership means to them and their approach to delivering transformation and change in the workplace so that teams achieve great things and people see their careers flourish. Today, we're talking to Laurie Figueredo, a digital learning strategist who has a vision not only to uplift the way we do business, but to significantly contribute in shaping the future of how we work and learn together, a theme that runs through this podcast series. Welcome, Laurie.
0: Hi, Duncan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to ask you, why do you believe that when there is more disruption, that there is more innovation, as you've stated on your bio?
0: I think what I've found from doing this for the, over 30 years is we're looking for those people that know how to handle disruption. So it's not the disruption per se, but it's more the disruptors, the people that are able to handle ambiguity and they're able to take that opportunity and see not the challenges but see the kind of solutions that we need and use it to shake up the status quo a little bit. So I often find that organizations are very much B2B, so I don't really work so much on the individual level, but sort of guiding organizations. I just find that often when there's too much budget, too many resources, it just creates a level of complacency. However, when there's challenges, when there's disruption, when there's ambiguity, certain people rise up And at all levels of the organization, and they become the leaders of the disruption, and they use that to make things better. So that's my experience. And that's from observing and working and learning with organizations for many years, of all sizes, big, small, in every industry, you know, many different industries. So I wouldn't say it's unique to a particular industry.
1: That's very interesting. Could you tell me a bit about how, once engaged with an organization, how you go about doing that and identifying the disruptors and then moving the initiative forward?
0: Well, every organization is a little bit different, but the guiding principles, people are people. And what I've done is because I've done this over and over again with SMEs, with NGOs, with schools, with education institutions, with huge corporations, but what I found is common is that when we can align the five Ps, and this is not... I mean, I made it up, but to be fair, I'm just reflecting what I've seen in the natural way organizations operate. So if we talk about any organization which is a space whether it's, as I said, big, small, medium, global, local. So in those spaces, what I found was when the first thing is people and purpose, when those two aligned, then that triggers high-performance culture. So the first things that I look at is who the people, what's the purpose, and together with that organization, we journey and we define, therefore, what are the processes that we need, and particularly my specialization is learning, So how can people work and learn together, which is the process? And then we look at platforms, which is technology. How do we enable the learning process and the way people work with various types of technology? But platforms is also just spaces. It could just be around the coffee machine. So any kind of space is a platform. So whether it's in the classroom, the coffee machine, on a digital space, a global platform. And then finally, what are the guiding principles? So what we do is... I operate sort of at a meta level, which is really at every point in time, we just keep looking to see how do we align these five enablers where people, um, purpose, process, platform, and the guiding principles can all work together. So it's really complex, but actually it can be really simple. When you've got leaders at different levels of the organizations working with you and you really identify and the early adopters gravitate towards these kind of projects, so that's when I see the magic happen, when we can have a few disruptors, you know, the early adopters, you know, working together. And then what we can do is really, you make it up and then you make it happen. You can actually design the future culture um, in a very organic, natural way and very authentic because it's done from within. It's not done from the outside.
1: The methodology is not prescriptive in that way. In the no. sense of a traditional methodology, you engage and then just start and then you attract people who are going to be the disruptors to help drive things forward
0: exactly so i'm sure you know in your work you found that as well there's sometimes you just a bit of luck and synchronicity you find those few people that will just step up. and what i'm always on the lookout for is in any project team so i've worked with huge airlines with 70 airports all over the world and and town offices and what we looked for and we said to the leadership let's find those people out there in the field amongst the front line as well as at a leadership level that can help us really imagine the future and co-create a completely different experience for the customer. So I'm never working alone. I'm not a big consulting firm or anything, but it really is how do we uh, tap into this natural energy within an organization and those hotspots of people that are probably the positive deviants. Um, There was a Harvard Business Review article once on this. Those are the people that with or without any intervention are just naturally already starting to shape best practices and better ways of doing things and just making work better for everybody. So those are the people you want to look out for. And again, I'll keep repeating at every level. But of course, I think as you would find in your projects, in the digital kind of projects, um, transformation projects that you always need that leadership buy-in. And that really goes a long way, you know, to get those leadership commitment and for them to be present because i think there's often there's commitment even in terms of dollars at times but they just don't show up they're not part of the journey they're not part of the the process they're not part of the design thinking so that's what i'm always on the lookout and i know when i've got that then then that's truly when the magic happens and people start coming together and co-creating
1: at that point you're able to move the whole conversation away from uh, whether it be some sort of technology deployment that's happening as part of the change. It doesn't become about just simply being trained on how to use computer systems. It's just a much bigger exercise than that.
0: Exactly, and I think that's you know something that we all struggle with, that everyone wants to lead with the technology in any transformation. And I'll just speak about learning in particular because that's my area of expertise. Mm. But everybody wants to just choose the platform. And the other thing that happens is they just want to know is where's the content in the courses and where's the classroom Um, So everyone defaults to the old island, which is what they're familiar with. So it's easy to just choose a platform, but who the people, what's the purpose, and what is that process and experience we're trying to create, and only, number four, do we look at the platform, and therefore, what are the spaces? And sometimes the offline spaces are better served to achieve the end in mind, to achieve the purpose. So it is the default in my domain is very much lead with technology, and I'm saying, These are the negative defaults. The other default is once you've got this technology, they're these huge beasts that everybody wants to feed and everyone just wants to upload them with content and irrespective of the quality, the the quantity is always important, but without really having a real purpose, which is very frustrating because it's not about how many pieces of content have I put on a particular learning platform, It's more about, you know, is it fit for purpose, like any technology deployment? And also, what are the offline spaces that we shouldn't lose that are still of relevance?
1: So could you give me an example of where this has particularly gone well?
0: Well, I've maybe work with two different examples, because working in the tech space in that industry definitely helps. So some of the the bigger organizations, the early adopters of technology, you know, many years ago was e-learning, and now it's obviously digital, um, and the whole blended learning And the other examples would be in the service industry, where there was, in both examples, the one was an airline, the other one was a tech company. And in both cases, the leadership really was part of the journey. So we worked with all four levels uh, across the organization from the very, very strategic um, direction of the organization. And we, we knew what True North was for the organization. And the leaders were there, you know, present and very active in the journey and attending all the discussions and learning and even defining what does that change and transformation mean for the next layer down, you know, for the next tier up of leaders and then at a more supervisory level and then at a team level, at the frontline level. So when it really worked was when we had that engagement at all four levels and everybody went on a journey and it wasn't just the leaders sitting, yeah. you know. Removed and just saying, you know, make the change, you get the, the people to change, but rather it was a collective and there was a shared purpose. And I think that's so it's again people and purpose where all levels were engaged. And number two, there was a shared purpose across all four levels in the organization and beginning with the early adopters.
1: Yeah. In one of my previous roles, we used to talk a lot, all the time about an empowerment in a consulting role, empowering the customer, empowering team members to be as innovative and creative as possible, just to make sure all the best ideas came out and then you really had a a great deal of success.
0: Exactly. So I think, as you and I have spoken before, I think that those lagging and leading indicators, so the lagging indicators are what everyone focuses on, which could be increased sales, reduced complaints, increased compliments. So for both of these case studies, there were very tangible lagging indicators. I have to take a minute. So lagging indicators, which are the hardcore KPIs or the business KPIs. However, we also recognized, and the leadership was completely on board, what were the leading indicators? Therefore, what were the things that if we raised these up, did more of something, less of something else, and kept doing a third thing, what might all these things be that were the levers and the leading indicators that if these improved, they would then impact the lagging indicators and the hardcore KPIs. So it doesn't have to be just feel good, although clearly there's an element of my three words is you first want to uplift the people that you're working with. They need to feel uplifted. Then we do upskilling and then we inspire. So to me, that's the kind of journey we want to take organizations and teams through. However, all towards a shared purpose that can be measured through traditional KPIs as well as those leading indicators which tell us that if we do more of this, we're going to get more of that.
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant point. We're all built to strive. And and so we set ourselves these lag indicators, and then we just regret it when we don't quite make it. And so we're just in this never ending cycle of failing to meet lag indicators, which you can't necessarily do anything about because uh, it's in the past. So if you can set yourself up with some lead indicators, then it can just have a massively positive impact on, on the organization, I always think.
0: Exactly. And I think you've got to imagine success first. So that's where we actually do exactly what you've just described. We're very clear what those lagging and hardcore KPIs are, but then we start discovering and by talking to the real people, and I know that annoys people sometimes, but often you've got people sitting around the table, as I'm sure you've (laughs) had, and they're completely disconnected. So even a very popular restaurant group, you know, we had some of the central people in the head office trying to make up, you know, what should change in terms of how the customer experience was happening in all the 70, 100 restaurants. And then I just said, well, aren't we talking to the wrong people? Let's get the real people at the table. Let's get the people that actually do the job. It was the actual grillers, the people in the restaurant, the people that were sitting there in a night shift when everybody's tired and they've got long queues. Those were the people that were better served. And that's where the leadership was able to take a step back and allow those people to come forward. And they'd never been asked what they thought before. And it took a little while to warm them up. And I'm talking about a few weeks to get everybody across the different operations, the different territories, slowly but surely to start opening up these conversations and running design sessions. And we didn't call it anything fancy. We just kept it to really like think out loud and just think out loud you know if we were to make this experience better for you and for the customer what might it look like so we just asked those open-ended questions got everyone comfortable and then in fact the leadership invested in a few extra volunteers that were really you know pumped and so we actually got to bring them all together and run a couple of day sessions and then on a regular basis we were able to not only go out to the field and get the input but also bring them together and they also just um, galvanized the rest, the people that weren't coming to the sessions and got the input. And it was really powerful. So back to your point about empowerment. For the first time, they felt listened to. And that in itself motivated people. And in fact, when the founder of this group came to the operations um, six, eight months later, he said, you know, credit to us as a team. Nobody referred to this transformation as being ours as belonging to the CEO or to me or to the central head office people everyone spoke about our expedition you know our experience there was so much pride behind it and that's what helped sustain it and make sure that it was scalable because everyone felt they were part of co-creating this transformation which can include digital but actually it's all again about the people purpose and process first and then after that you can think about What technology do you need to enable this experience?
1: So that's how you identify the people that will be the adopters who will embrace what you're doing straight away. As Simon Sinek mentioned this in Start With Why, is that there's a a small percentage of people who will just sign up straight away. Then there's most people who will go along with changes. Once it's explained, they get on board over time. So you're just using those situations, so knowing that you need to identify some people, and then these opportunities present themselves for people to almost sign up and start offering themselves up to work with you
0: and it's an old concept that has been used in technology and I, I remember when i was working with organizations like cisco they were always talking about crossing the chasm that book and that's where they've got this bell curve and they just said yeah. you start with those early adopters so i'm always stealing ideas from you know technology from montessori from so many different um, domains and disciplines and that's where i was n- naturally gravitating to do that but then you know after reading that and um having that validated that particularly in the tech world, and this was really early days, that book was written at the time where people like Steve Jobs and people like that were coming up with completely unrequested products that no one was even asking for. And uh, what they needed was the early adopters that would handle ambiguity, that would help them and like what now we call in Agile, the fail fast, learn faster. So those are the kind of people that it just makes such a difference, Um, Duncan. I find that the energy of the group just spirals up. So in Italian, there's, in a good way, I mean, spirals upwards, meaning everyone's motivating each other. At every level, as I say, it's not just the leadership, but clearly you do need the leadership's engagement. And in Italian, the dessert called tiramisu, that's my favorite sort of tagline, which is a tiramisu tribe. So what you're looking for in organizations are those tiramisu tribe, those people that are just naturally the handle ambiguity, there will be the uplifters, you know, uh, Tiramisu means pick me up in Italian. So not only does it taste good and most people love it and it brings a smile on people's face, but also it actually means pick me up. So it's those pick me up kind of people, the people that don't get bogged down, that even when, you know, we come across adversity or we failed, they will bounce back and come at it from another angle. So those are the Tiramisu tribe, those are those early adopters, which they speak about in Crossing the Chasm, you know, many years ago. When the book came out, I saw that widely proven in the tech world and how these uh, very traditional, you know, Dell, HP, Cisco, the organizations I was working with, I watched how they used it in technology and I brought it into the learning world. And then from there, of course, in more recent years, you know, there's the whole agile you know, way of working and so on, which to yes. me is just a good way of working. We should work like that all the time, not just because COVID's around, you know, and, and be adaptive as, as people and as teams.
1: You touched on Italy there. I did want to ask you about how you adapt your approach when you're in different countries and cultures.
0: I must say I might have a bit of a controversial view on this for some people um, just because you go into a particular country or you might go into Hong Kong or China or you go into other parts of the world in the States and people... Honestly, people think that they are very unique. And of course, every culture and every even corporate culture is unique. And we wanna respect that. However, if you just raise your head a little bit higher and above that, people are people. And as long as we're able to connect with people and, and create that kind of connection, I do believe that um, the work that, that we do, and especially if you're working, and particularly in my case, you know, working in organizations, that are multinational at times, or at least even in a local company, there'd be a lot of different um, nationalities. I think what we're looking for is that shared purpose. And that might translate in in different ways for different people, but the true north for everybody is common. So when you can go above our differences, and that's what I always look for, is while I respect everyone's, even individuality and even their cultural um, uniqueness, always respect that. However, Let's connect as people first and then your unique culture and your unique personality come second. So I feel very strongly and I learned that, you know, being born and brought up in South Africa, where we were a very multicultural nation, and that's what I happened to be at a session with Carl Rogers, who's a famous psychologist who's passed away now. He's all about how to connect with people and empathize and see the world through their lens. And that's what I had some of my other colleagues from very different um cultural backgrounds, and that's what they said, to them, respect was when we could connect with each other at a human level first. And then secondly, let's treat each other and respect each other's cultures and our individual uh, perspectives. But let's be human first. So that's what I always look for is connect with people's humanness. You know, in Africa, it's like Ubuntu. Ubuntu means the, the essence of who I am connects with the essence of who you are. I think that also guides me as the way that I connect with people and I just find that when you walk into your first project meeting with the team normally I just try and share that philosophy not impose it on the group but rather share my thinking and then just see if if we are all aligned and just find that common purpose and shared direction that we all want to go in while at the same time respecting our idiosyncrasies.
1: Yeah that's very interesting I've worked in situations before in the insurance market where Products are different in in different mm. countries across the globe, but they're not that different really. And sometimes we got ourselves a little bit stuck in some of those details, whereas what you're saying is if you come in a way above that, then you don't get so hung up on what's different. Then you're down a slightly negative track. It's a little bit difficult to get out of it then because you're so focused on what's different rather than what's the same.
0: Yeah, and I think you, you get what you inspect. So if I walk into a situation, I'm looking for the dichotomy, I'm looking for the differences, I'm looking where we might disagree, then that's what I'm going to find. Born and brought up in South Africa, very Italian family. So at home, my life was Italian. But the minute I stepped out the front door, it would be very South African, multicultural, um, you know, working across so many different cultures and types of organizations. And then living 30 years in Singapore, again, very multicultural. And now, you know, living in London, it's just crazy. But it's the it's similarity to me because I look for similarity. And I've traveled all over the world and collaborated with organizations all over the world. And of course, there's certain idiosyncrasies that might be very typically Singaporean or very typically British. And those are amazing. And you want to respect those and tap into those. But essentially, what people want at a life level, at a work level, at a social level, there's more commonality than I see differences. So I think even you know partnering with organizations and teams, I think that's part of the message that we should bring. Versus creating dichotomy and bipolarization and divisiveness, um, and rather create inclusiveness while respecting the diversity.
1: That applies across cultures as well if you're working with organizations that span continents and the globe.
0: Exactly, because they've chosen to work for a global organization. Because if I do get a lot of pushback, for example, I might get someone that just says, no, you know, we cannot do that. You know, this is country X or culture X. It is interesting so I'll just treat that as I'm just curious to see that a person has chosen to work for a global organization and yet they won't let go of their sort of meeting in the middle so meeting of minds to say okay what is something that's acceptable to all of us and that we're all comfortable with irrespective of whichever culture we've come from but is going to be in the best good of the people the employees as well as customers so I just think it's important to get beyond that conversation and to look at some kind of bigger shared purpose, and, and I'll keep repeating, so when I've had, you know, pushback like that, I'd often just ask that person to be the devil's advocate, to say, yeah. you know, what might they see that doesn't fit, you know, if we are operating a local culture, and how we might tweak that, but yet still be part of a global family, you know, that's the point.
1: When you look at all the organizations you work with and all the people that you work with all over the world, where do you think we are on the scale? You know, are we anywhere near, for example, your work being done compared to, say, 20 years ago, for example? How do you think we're getting on as a collective? Mm,
0: That's a tricky question. I'm a very positive person. I'm very optimistic. I think sometimes it's frustrating in the sense that I think there could be more happening in terms of just the simple things uh, uh, there's nothing new to me we've been talking about how we should work and learn together and create many years ago it was called a learning organization we had different terms and different technologies but the technologies have evolved and those have got more and more sophisticated now my clients have got technologies with ai and um, really super um, phenomenal uh, tools that can be used to amplify people's efforts but at the end of the day people are still people and the way yes. we operate and our habits, and the analogy I came up with ages ago, and which is old to me now, which is the old island and new island, I still find in this modern day I could be working with some of the top leading people in the financial markets, for example. The companies are normally individuals. It's a company it has got a, an identity, but it's made up of the individuals there is still the um, the old island kind of thinking the command and control it's uh, not invented here let's tell people what they need you know they don't know what they need so that kind of to be you know very old school way of thinking is still pretty prevalent it's just exciting when you find these pockets of the new island which is you know what you were mentioning earlier that if you don't trust people you're not going to empower them but if you trust them fundamentally if you trust yourself trust your people And my three assumptions are that we all have an innate wisdom that we need to tap into individually, collectively as teams and as organizations. This deep innate wisdom that we often uh, goes to waste. We're not tapping it into enough. We've got a natural capacity to learn. We don't have to make people learn. People are learning with or without us. So we don't force them to learn. And when those two get come together to create a shared purpose and people feel engaged and part of that and feel an emotional connection to the shared purpose, that's a new island. Then you get syzygy and then you get alignment. So syzygy just means alignment. So I just use that word because it is a real word in English. And it means when the sun, earth and the moon are aligned, there's a powerful force that pulls them together. And that state of alignment is what we're really looking for in any organization where people are pulling together together to achieve a a common and shared purpose. And there are definitely examples and whether it's pockets in an existing organization or the whole organization, but I do believe that should be our shared purpose is whether we're in an organization or supporting organizations, that I think should be the common end that we're really helping the teams, the divisions, the whole organizations, every organization to come together and work towards a shared purpose.
1: As you say, regardless of maybe which technology comes out, whether it's AI or mobile apps, it's still the same people-oriented approach to adopting uh, those technologies.
0: It's called human-centered design, but it's really mm-hmm. just good common sense, and not to knock that um, domain by any means. But yeah, yeah. Um, But you know, and they've done a good job of just pulling together tools and, and making that available to anyone in an organization. And I've you know worked with one of the leading banks in Asia, and I've learned a lot. Journeying with them, you know, clearly as part of of several teams, uh, many teams that were working across the bank. And um, we definitely adopted that kind of human-centered design, the whole agile approach. And it was amazing to see that the teams and the leaders that together embraced it, you know, at all levels, they would leap forward. That's where, as I say, whether it was organizations that I've worked with from Singapore Airlines to the DBSs of this world to HP Dell, whatever, and even to small organizations like Nando's, you just see the magic happens when people pull together. So to me, it's all about people and purpose. There's a big opportunity for all of us to, to just be more collaborative, you know, to be more adaptive, to really work together and not to slip back to that old island, which is a bit of comfort zone um, for everybody where it's just command and control. And what
1: would be the one thing you'd like the audience to take away from this entire talk today?
0: I think I just want to challenge all of us to say that change is a conscious choice. I think of change as happening in a space, so space could be the the energy and the dynamics and how you work with your own team, and then the energy and the dynamics and the spaces of your team then connecting with other teams. So if each one of us took charge of our own space and beginning with the people closest to us in our team and in our organization. And saw it as a space, so whether it's an online space, the offline space, but any spaces, whether it's our email, the way we talk, the way we meet up, the way we do our Zoom calls, if all of us just made a conscious effort to have a much more uplifting and empowering view towards each other, I do feel it will make work a better place, you know, the workplace a better place. I think particularly because of COVID now, I think people do need more uplifting and inspiring and upskilling and reskilling. So those are the three words that I'll keep repeating, the ups, you know, we need to uplift each other, upskill each other and inspire each other. And um, when we're able to do that, I do believe we're just lifting the you know, collective energy for everybody and everyone's going to do better, whether it's the company itself, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's yourself. So I think it's really is that kind of tiramisu kind of uplifting attitude that will really make a difference to people on a day-to-day basis. If that becomes just a, a, a way of being, or just a habit, a way of operating on a daily basis, I think that would make a difference.
1: Yeah, I think that's just a fantastically uplifting note to end on. What's the best way to make contact with you, Laurie, if uh, anyone would like to reach out?
0: So it's Laurie, L-O-R-I, at syzygy, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, com S-G. So that's my email. And I'm a very open, collaborative kind of person, and I'm always just interested to learn and share with other people. We're all learning as we're going, and um, the more we can all support and uplift each other, I think the definitely work will be a better place for all of us.
1: Yeah, well, thanks very much, Laurie. It's been lovely to talk to you today. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Duncan. Thanks for having me.
1: This podcast series is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studios, Oxford, UK.